But it's this place. We can't ever get away from it. We go on and on, but it would get us in the end. It gets everybody in the end. But you can't have everything. We not only can't, but we don't. listening to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. Welcome to Grim Up North, a podcast from the North, about the North. I'm Adrian Scott. And I'm Matt Carr. Today, we're going to be asking the question, how did it get so Grim Up North? Among other things... We're going to be discussing the writings of J.B. Priestley and George Orwell as people who wrote about the North. And we'll be speaking to George Orwell's son about the road to Wigan Pier. Quite a coup, I think. Definitely. But before we do that, let me ask you, Matt, why is it important to you, whether it's grim or not? Well, it's something that interests me because I've lived up here for more than 20-odd years now and the North has never been grim for me. Right. I've had some of the best moments of my life living up here in my relation to Sheffield, in my relation to the landscape in, in the Peak District and so on and the North Yorkshire Moors. And yet I've always been aware that the North has been depicted as grim. Yeah. And I do have memories of it as being grim in yeah. terms of how it looked once upon a time. And I've noticed that it's changed, you know, even in my lifetime. So I'm interested in how, why did people, where does this come from, this idea yeah. that the North is grim? How true is it? And who's actually saying it? Yeah. I mean, this is important for you as well, of course, it because is. you, unlike me, are from here. Well, I am. And I, I was interested in asking you that question because it's obvious to me the North's got under your skin. Um, and it's it's somewhere that, that you feel deeply about. And so do I. And when I came here as a child, I think Sheffield, you could say, well, it was grim in Sheffield. There were bits of Sheffield that were very grim. Um when you came off the motorway, down the parkway, there was a massive slag heap that was next to the Orgreave coking plant of, of the yeah. famous battle. Um, and and it was dark and smoky and, and bits of Sheffield were grim. But it was never all grim. And, and I remember, you know, going out with my parents into the Peak District and only when I moved to London did I suddenly think, good grief, I lived in a lovely place. Um, so it, it's a it's an interesting question. Um, h- how did it get that epithet that it's grim up here? Well, let's let's get into that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can start with our the, our theme song yes. for this podcast tells us something about this already, doesn't it? Yeah. So we're really grateful to the KLF for letting us use it. Um, and um, I was just doing an interview with Radio Sheffield about the podcast, and they played our opening jingle. Um, Fantastic song. It's an amazing song. Um, Because you've got that first bit that's such uh, an evocation of just the names of towns in the north. Totally. And then it moves into this mystical rendition of Jerusalem. 
but there's an interesting fact about it. In 1991, there was a, a Joe Ashton, an MP for Bassett Law. I remember him. He was a director at Sheffield mm-hmm. Wednesday. He had an, is it an early day motion that this house yep. calls on the Secretary of State for Transport to remove the huge white painted graffiti on the bridge over the M1 on the northbound carriageway, just north of the M25, which reads, it's grim up north, or alternatively arranged to add the words gruesome in the Midlands and now but homeless folk in cardboard boxes <laughs> in London. <laughs> the funny thing about that was is that, that people thought that the KLF themselves had written, had written the it. words Grim Up North as publicity <laughs> for that track. Um, they deny it. Well, um, yeah. Well, but, it, it was good publicity. It was. But the interesting thing about that is, you know, the expression Grim Up North has been around for so long, it's actually become a kind of dictionary phrase, yeah. a set phrase. For example, the Urban Dictionary... They describe it, they say, Grim Up North, an English phrase used by residents of the South (laughs) to describe the northern half of the country, stems from the period of history when the North was highly industrialised. And it even gives an example. I would go to Lancashire, but you know what they say, it's Grim Up North. (laughs) And then the Free Dictionary, they say, an adage that life in northern England is greatly inferior to that of the South. Example, the company wants me to relocate to the branch in Middlesbrough but I'm not sure I want to go, to which someone says, can't say I blame you, it's grim up north. <laughs> yeah, so where did this come from? Well, that, I mean... I wonder. This, uh, in Hilary Mantel's novel, Wolf Hall, in the first oh. pages, Cardinal Woolsey... So we're going Woolsey, back a while. Yeah. Right, we're going back a while, we are indeed. Cardinal Woolsey asked Thomas Cromwell, mm-hmm. the main subject of the novel, he says, so now, tell me, how was Yorkshire... And Cromwell replies, filthy, weather, people, manners, morals, oh, and the food, five miles inland and no fresh fish, no fresh fish, to which Woolsey says, well, what do they eat up there? Londoners, Cromwell says, <laughs> you've never seen such heathens. So like, going back, she it, does her research as well. She does so do she's her not research. just made that up. So she was definitely capturing a certain view of the north from the south. Um, in the Tudor period. Um, but really, the expression Grim Up North, the way we imagine northern grimness, yeah. stems from industrialisation yeah, and deindustrialization. It's kind of bookended between those two experiences. It is, isn't it? I mean, you look at early travellers' impressions of the north, they described it as a different civilization, something mm. that looked different and felt different. Just, you know, Blake's dark satanic, satanic mills melts. quote from, from Milton. The whole Jerusalem thing. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. Exactly that. Although... The Jerusalem thing always carries another possibility, which we'll come to later. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, take Engels, who lived in Manchester, factory owner in Manchester. Big friend of this programme now. Uh, Yep. (laughs) He said, um, this is is from the condition of the working classes in England. This is a description of housing in Manchester. The houses are packed very closely together, and since the bank of the river is very steep, it is possible to see a part of every house. All of them have been blackened by soot. All of them are crumbling with age and all have broken window panes and window frames. In the background, there are old factory buildings which look like barracks. On the opposite low-lying bank of the river, one sees a long row of houses and factories. The second house is a roofless ruin filled with refuse. So that's a pretty descriptive account of northern grimness as it's seen in the middle of the 19th century. 
And then you've got William Cobbett, who was... William Cobbett, who was it? William Cobbett was a radical writer who right. travelled through England in the in 1830 and wrote a book about it. Right. All the way along, from Leeds to Sheffield, it is coal and iron and iron and coal. It was dark before we reached Sheffield, so that we saw the iron furnaces in all the horrible splendour of that everlasting blaze. Nothing can be conceived more grand and more terrific than the yellow waves of fire that incessantly issue from the top of these furnaces, some of which are close by the wayside. This Sheffield and the land all about it is one bed of iron and coal. They call it Black Sheffield, and black enough it is, but from this town and its environments go nine-tenths of the knives that are used in the whole world. Wow. That makes me feel very Some proud Does it? It and makes you horrified proud. at the same time. Do you feel any, you know, like growing up as a child in Sheffield, are there any echoes in that description that, that kind yes. of resonate with you yeah, and how yeah. the city felt and looked at the time? My, my mum and dad used to take me at night uh, to Templeborough between Rotherham and Sheffield where all the big furnaces were and it was like a fireworks display. I remember it. You could see the furnaces from miles off. Um and also that sense that anywhere you went, possibly in the world, if you lifted up the knife at your, at your restaurant table, it would invariably say, made in Sheffield. And it, it, it gave you a sense, oh, I come from somewhere. Uh, we make something, something that's, that people want. Um, so yeah. the, the interesting thing about those descriptions is they capture the idea of the North as being synonymous with a different civilization, yeah. almost. The look of it is completely different from the South. That's how it's depicted anyway. Obviously, there were places like that in the in South. In the South, yeah, but, I'm sure. But nevertheless, it's seen as a northern situation. The slag heaps, the factories, the furnaces, um, this place of um, transformation in nature taking place. Terrific, he calls it. Terrific, yeah, and he didn't mean that in a, in <laughs> no. a factoring way. No, no, no. And, and I mean, there's poetry. Um, Ebenezer Elliot, a Sheffield poet, mm -hmm. has a great poem um, where where he takes old blind Andrew Turner through the city and he describes to him it's like Dante and and Virgil he describes to him the scenes that he sees with with a sort of powerful metaphors mm -hmm. of of um, human ingenuity and this unleashing of the forces of nature to create something uh, powerful but also he he rails about how desperate the plight of the people who work here uh, is. Well, it's interesting that even in the nineteenth century, these travellers were noting that. I mean, they might you can sense a certain admiration for mm. the, what was happening in the north. Well, and, and Ebenezer Elliot was from Sheffield, but you can see it in him as well. Uh, and, and other writers, uh, another poet, Joseph Senior, I think he's called Stithy Rhymes for 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 Stithy Chimes or something he wrote and he talks all about the, the music of the hammers um, yes, yes, but, yes. but he says and I did this he's talking about a, a steel worker I did this all for an untimely old age so you know you, you get this poetic sense of people being fed into this even in that Absolutely. period, into a machine. That well, that's was... kind of what Blake was getting at when he talks about dark satanic mills, really. I mean, so this, there's a kind of sense of um, these people travelling through the north, visiting it, these outsiders, mm. were in awe of it, 
yeah. what was happening, but at the same time horrified by it. It was the kind of place you can admire, but you don't stay there. No. <laughs> you, you go through it very quickly and try and translate it into good prose yeah. and then get it out. Yeah. Yeah. But the same kind of thing, you get the same kind of thing in a different way in the 1930s, which yeah. I would say that is, that is the period in which the idea of northern grimness was really created. Because this, you had a whole stream of writers and photographers going yeah. up to the north that was then in dire economic straits yeah. coming out of the Depression, Depression. and so on. Yeah. And they, the way they wrote about it is still part of the way that we think about the north and the way we imagine the north. I think you're right. I think you're right. From, from the stuff that we've been reading, um, you can hear the, the echoes of that writing right up to now in the way people characterise the Norse. Um, so I, I do think that these people, even if we've never heard of them, are influencing the way we think about uh, the North now. Totally. And let's have, a, let's have a listen to an example of 30s Northern grimness, shall we? Let's. From Love on the Doll. Labour never ending. Constant struggles to pay the rent and to buy sufficient food and clothing. No time for anything that is bright and beautiful. We never see such things. All we see are these grey, depressing streets, mile after mile of them, never-ending, and the houses in which we are compelled to live are as though they have been designed by fiends in hell for our special punishment. When work is regular, we are just able to live from week to week. There is no surplus. But forever... There hangs over us that dread threat of unemployment. Unemployment that can, and does, reduce most honest working folk to pauperdom. That saddles them with a debt that takes years to repay. Even at its best, I say that this is not life. You are listening to Grim Up North podcast about the North, from the North. Wow. Even at its best, I say this is not life. Who's saying that? Well, that quote comes from um, Walter Greenwood's novel, Love on the Dole. And that came out in... novel. Exactly. It was. It came out in 1933. Uh, It had an enormous impact um, on the the times, let alone what came later. I mean, that was partly because of the novel itself. Because it... um, Unlike a lot of the stuff written about the North in that period, this was written by somebody who lived it. Yeah, exactly. Who knew it, who came from Salford. Yeah. And so he was writing from the inside. But the world he was describing, this world of poverty, exploitation... Unemployment. Unemployed, yeah. Huge unemployment. And yeah. also the te- the terror of unemployment yeah, hovering yeah. over everybody's life. The exploitation built into the apprenticeship system yeah. so that you would have money when you were an apprentice. And then yeah. when, you, when you passed your apprenticeship, there were no jobs for you. And the and so, way it starts with the the the, the um, pawnbroker, people pawning their own bedsheets. Exactly. I mean, it, 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 it's one of those things. When I read it, I thought, oh, "That can't be true," but it, it, it it's true. He's writing from his own lived experience. It is, and that seemed quite a novelty at the time. <laughs> I mean, the thing about it's also quite a poignant um, description well, of is. life in a northern industrial city at the time. It is. It's not all bad, but what is bad is really bad. 
I mean, like one of the characters driven into semi-prostitution yeah. because she can't marry. Yeah. Um, the, the person who, the, that quote was from the self-educated Marxist factory worker, Larry yeah. Meath, yeah. who tries to rouse the workers to take action against their <laughs> conditions. But it was really very difficult for to do anything. You had, in those cities, well, exactly. so well in that book, you had this system just pressing down on the working classes. That's well put, pressing down. And we have that at the beginning of this podcast in, in the jingle, at the beginning, we've got from the film um, with what's her name, Deborah Kerr. Deborah Kerr, and they're they're trying to do a Northern accent very badly in that sort of nineteen forties clips. But the interesting thing is that they wanted to do it, yeah, exactly, because the North hadn't really featured in kind exactly. of popular culture in the South until then, really. I mean, yes, that, the... that's poignant to me. It, it's it, even though it's it, it sounds a little bit hackneyed and dated, the fact that they were trying to portray that. And and the the the, the film the, the censors weren't very keen. No, they um, weren't. They weren't because of the sexuality yeah. in it, and the sexuality more than the poverty and the exploitation. <laughs> I mean, I, I should qualify that the North had featured in popular culture before yeah. in the nineteenth century, but this was a very specific yeah. period in which the North was on its knees, basically. And even the, the one of the reviews of the the impact of love and the doll was not confined to the novel it became a play an enormously successful oh, yeah. play yeah. so much i mean the novel was published in 1933 but then in by 1935 the publicity for the play said 2 million people have seen this have Good you grief. it said it was seen by the royal family, the Queen of Spain, the King of Siam, who abdicated just a few days after seeing it in the West End. <laughs> Do you think it, surely no connection? Caused it, and he came to live in Salford. It was eventually yeah. shown. It went eventually put on tour in to audiences in Salford, Sheffield, Birmingham, Wigan, and other places in the north. And during one of the performances, the unemployed were invited to come and see it, and they were also extras. Extras in, in the Manchester performance of it, they were well, unemployed people were extras. And were they um, being paid or not paid? Not clear. They were there in the crowd scenes. Apparently. It's that thing of seeing your life reflected back to you, seeing yourself. You know, in more modern discussions of, of, of racism or sexism, you know, I think for working class people to see themselves being portrayed and, and in the way that Greenwood does it yeah. uh, with dignity... I think that's a big theme of this whole Grim Up North thing. Totally. Is is this the North has dignity and community and it and, and that novel especially portrays it. It reminds me a little bit of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my granddad who was from London. That was his favourite book. It sat on his on his chair and I've had it rebound. I've got it in my house. And it, it it's got that same being pressed down, I like the way you said that. That these people, and he's, you know, in that, Tressel is trying to say, you've got to get out of this. And you feel that in Love on the Dole as well. There's not really any way out in, in the novel, really. No. There's no way out. I mean, one of the reviews um, says, Here is life in grim reality. That word again. <laughs> there we go. Here are old folk in despair at the blows fate deals them. Here yeah. are young folk in revolt against all that they feel deprives them of the right to work, the right even to love. God. So, you know, this is not a hopeful novel, even though it is what you say. It is no. It is a very kind of poignant well, and dignified portrayal of life in a working-class yeah. neighbourhood in Salford. And, and you know, the word grim has the grim reaper um, uh, as a reference as well, and, and you feel the stalking sort of uh, figure 
of poverty and death. But uh, and that sounds all very heavy, I know. But it, it'd be worth actually listening to Walter Greenwood himself. Let's listen. Have there been any surprises for you? Things turned out differently than you expected. But so definitely, it's been a marvellous change for the better. In the uh, well, the way the children who were children at the beginning of the war, they were given vitamins and milk. And look at the size of them now. They're all six foot and the education opportunities after the war. And, uh, well, we did our fighting for what we saw on its third generation to do the fighting with today. So you think the new Salford has lost something and gained something? Well, to gain one thing, you're bound to lose something else. But the cost of that neighbourliness, when wages were as they were then, it was a scandal, a living scandal to the British Empire. The wages, the, the, the miserable wages that were paid People having to go to pawn their own bedding on a Monday morning. I, I just couldn't understand why. Well, of course, the people down in London didn't know. The North was the North, some wild place that, this, that they invested the money in. And didn't know the effect of the humani on humanity. And that produced that wonderful neighborliness, that friendship. All together, any trouble, they were all together. Wow. What a great voice he's got. He does. And the, the interesting thing about that that interview is um, when he says that um, the North seemed like a wild country, like yeah. another place, <laughs> is that um, in the period that he wrote his novel, a lot of books were being written about the North, yeah. and they were kind of um, crucial books in defining um, Northern grimness, once again. Some of these books were part of a generalised search for England, Yes. taking place in the 20s and 30s. You had a, whole, a lot of writers, not necessarily with any kind of social or political agenda, yeah. going round the country by motor car yes. or motor coach sometimes yeah. because it was the first time it was really possible. Motor coach. Investigating yeah. England and finding out what England was. And a lot of them took the pulse of the nation yeah. by taking the pulse of the north. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's one here, for example, lesser known than some of the others, but okay. it's nevertheless quite telling. Her name was Mary Ellen Chase. She was an American professor of English and she wrote a book called England Now in oh, wow. 1937. This is what she said. There are few more ugly, more depressing places on the earth than the industrial towns of northern England. <laughs> Their very names lack the euphony of the south. The Manchester. What? The euphony. The euphony. <laughs> not a very common word. No. Either, really. <laughs> Manchester, Stalebury, Leeds, Bradford, Sheffield, Crewe and Preston. She went on to describe like the rows of, it is a bit, it's very much so. She went on to describe rows upon rows of identical grey houses where strident women with untidy babies stand in doorways. The smell of cheap petrol, fish and chip shops, smoke and wet woolens, advertisements for lion's tea, capstan and woodbine cigarettes, miserable shops displaying through their unwashed windows, pink rock candy, drill overalls, tin sardines, sticky kippers. So what do you make of that? <laughs> well, she did a good job of being pretty patronising. Um, <laughs> well, she she did, and she. And, well, what Walter Greenwood says about they didn't know. You know the pe the people in the south they invested in the north, but they didn't know. He, you know, thank God some people did come and write about it, even if it is patronising. But, it, but at least, I mean, to me, these people like her, like Orwell, like Priestley, 
the like modern day documentary makers, you know, at a time before that kind of mass media, they were they were painting a picture of the state of the north. Yes, yeah, so I think and, probably more so with some of the others than with her. I mean, the impression you get from that quote, all this stuff about uh, the smell of cheap petrol and strident women with untidy babies, you get somebody with a very chocolate boxy view of well, exactly. what England should be, yeah. and the North didn't fit it for no. her. And no, also, and she that's was, perennial to me that theme that of people making those kind of judgments without getting under the neath, underneath to find out what Walter Greenwood talks about that these people were incredible and had dignity and and humour and looked after each other. That comes out in Love on the Dole. It does. It doesn't come out in her quote. Not really, no. I mean, interesting what you say about writers who knew the North, because one of the most influential writers in describing the North and also in establishing the idea of Northern Grimness was J.B. Priestley. Yes. And Priestley is a very interesting writer because he is a writer... Of the North. Yeah. Born in Bradford. Bradford. His father was a school teacher. Right. Introduced him to kind of um, what nowadays many people consider a rather fluffy version of um, Methodist socialism. Right. Anyway, Priestley Priestley wrote a book called English Journey. Yes. Published in 1934, sorry. Smashing book. It is. It is indeed. And it's one of those books that, like The Road to Wigan Pier, which we're also going to be talking yeah, about, yeah. it's one of those books that keeps coming back again and again. Yeah. People keep following the journey yeah. that um, Priestley took. Will Self has done it. Yes. The poet um, Lem Sisse has done it. Yes. Uh, Margaret Drabble has also done it. Beryl Brainbridge. So English Journey is one people. of those books in which you kind of um, you take it with you when you go mm. and you measure the place you were passing through yeah. by what Priestley said in that book. Yeah, it's 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 uh, and and it's when I got it, I was quite shocked because it's so densely written. Um, I'm just looking at it now. You know, the the, the paragraphs are massive, um, and he, he, you know, he really doesn't stint in giving really redolent descriptions of things not at all and he doesn't keep his own opinions out of it either it's a very opinionated book the interesting thing about it is he was commissioned by um victor galance to do a book about the industrial areas or the special areas as they were known in the by the government in those days the special areas yeah the special areas were the places of high unemployment almost all in the north where the government struggled i'm glad we were special you were special you were definitely (laughs) special so he was sent to do that but he didn't do it he didn't do what he was asked ah, to do. Right. He did it up to a point, but he basically had his own agenda, which mm. was to kind of try and define not just what the North was or what the industrial special areas were, but what England was. Yeah. So hence his, the his, English journey. His, that, hence the English journey. So he didn't go straight to the North. He began it in the Isle of Wight, and then he went to the West Country, and then he went up through the yeah, Midlands. Yeah, yeah, you finally. get that great movement North. You do. When he gets to Birmingham and places like that, yeah. And you have to say that the for, further north he gets, the grimmer it, <laughs> it gets. gets. You know, I mean, um, see, some of his sentences, I mean, he wrote, he said in um, describing why he wrote his book, he said, I am here in a time of stress to look at the face of England, however blank or bleak that face may chance to appear, wow. and to report truthfully what I see here. Even that motivation speaks of a different era when it writers does, could it? do that. Yeah. You know, when writers could go to places and what they said would kind of influence the way millions of people thought about a particular place. And we're not in that era anymore. It's it, it's it's images 
visual images that seem to to do that more. But I still think the ability of these people to to write prose that that capture your imagination, you know, you feel. I, I reading that book, you feel like you're going with him. Let's say yeah, absolutely. And and the question is what what he you know some of English Journey is actually quite lyrical description yeah. of cathedral towns yeah. of priestly love that he thought were part of old England. Yes. Then there was this kind of celebration of kind of modern manufacture in the middle in the middle of Coventry, you know, yeah. electro domestics and so on, vacuum cleaners. Yes, yeah, you can feel like he's that's the brave new world that he thinks we're all moving towards. But then there's this great lump of what he called Victorian England. <laughs> which is the north yeah. and the midlands parts of the midlands as well which just basically sits there and there's this huge waste of human um potential yeah. there because of unemployment because the place is blighted by the depression and the collapse of shipbuilding mm. and so mm. on mm. and then you get these powerful sentences like his um description of jarrow where he says there were men hanging about not scores of them but hundreds and thousands of them the whole town looked as if it had entered a perpetual penniless bleak sabbath the men wore the drawn masks of prisoners of war. Oh, my God. So that idea, you know, yeah. these groups of men standing outside the Dole office like prisoners of war and is such a powerful um, it is really pa- description, I, I, isn't it? So my dad was from that area, from the northeast, but my granddad was uh, from London, but he met the Jarrow Marchers. I've got a photograph mm-hmm. of him. Um, they met them with soup and Amazing. bread. Um, and he's there with the Wilsdon District Unemployment Association to meet the Jarrow Marchers. Um, and that makes it come alive for me a bit, um, that, that these men came from the north to say, hey, look, this is what we're going through. And that description is is bleak. I mean, it is bleak. And sometimes people, critics of Priestley, have sometimes asked whether he was too bleak. Because the thing is, he wasn't always complimentary. No. I mean, the... He was a very empathetic writer. I mean, mm. he was horrified mm. by the kind of poverty he saw and what he saw as the, as the kind of waste of human potential yeah. in the North. I mean, the question he asks, was Jarrow still in England or not? Had we exiled Lancashire and the Northeast Coast? Were we no longer on speaking terms with cotton weavers and miners and wow. platers and riveters? Wow. Why had nothing been done about these decaying towns and their workless people? So this was, you know, that he was asking the questions. Definitely, yeah. And, but he also said things like this about Stoke-on-Trent. I have seen few regions from which nature has been banished more ruthlessly Good and grief. banished in favour of a sort of troglodyte mankind. This is an issue, isn't it? With the people that we're, we're talking about with Orwell and Priestley. You know, thank God people described it. But also... You think, God, what's it like to be described as a troglodyte? Um, how these people reacted to to those descriptions, but but you know, thank God someone did. Indeed, but then you know, the, the interesting thing about Priestley is he was fr- from the north, and yet he was introducing these ideas of the north to a readership that was not of the north yeah he knew that you can in yes it's clear throughout the book yeah and there's a question of you know that sometimes this kind of painful social awareness of um the mm. impact of unemployment mm. and the kind of work that were people doing on the north you get things like um durham a nightmare place that seemed to have been constructed out of small 
army huts and unwanted dog kennels, all <laughs> sprawling in the muck outside some gigantic works. Tyneside, after you've seen it, you realise that it is not for the likes of us to be sorry for ourselves. Um, so he had a cold, Priestley. Right. This may sound... This <laughs> you mean may sound perpetually marginal. or just no, not when he was writing he this? He developed a cold as he moved through the north. Right. And um, <laughs> the thing about it is some people say he was taking um, cough medicine which had opiates in it. <laughs> um, and he himself says in the book that he was actually <laughs> a little bit out of his head as he went up further north into the northeast. And the further north he went, the bleaker it got and the worse his mood got. Great. Um, he was... Um, <laughs> Between Manchester and Bolton, the ugliness is so complete, oh, it is almost yes. exhilarating. It challenges this. you to live there. Cities like Manchester owe to the cotton industry. It was then that all these hideous towns were built, towns meant to work in and not really to live in. The thing is, people were living in them it, well, yeah. and are living in them. And, and, and like she says in that clip at the beginning, you know, it's not, it's not where you live, it's who you live with. Uh, you know, Deborah Kerr. And he, I think, I think, well, I wonder how much he appreciated he, that. He, he I think he to. did sometimes. I mean, in Lancashire, for example, he writes of all these decent people, good citizens, are being wasted. Their manhood and womanhood, their energy and skill, their self-respect, all flung on scrap heap. No, I get that. But then, in Gateshead, the whole town appeared to have been carefully planned by an enemy of the human race in its more <laughs> exuberant aspects. Insects can do better than this. No true civilization could have produced such a town. Has to be said. Oh, Gateshead. Well, I, indeed. I mean, maybe the cough medicine really got to him. I think it did. His mood began to improve, and so did his cold as he went further south back into Lincolnshire. So the thing about English Journey, the thing about Priestley, it's not just a book which features the North. No. This book was hugely influential um, at its time. You know, it was a bestseller immediately. Yeah. Priestley was already a rich writer when he made his journey. It should be pointed out, by the way, that he journeyed through the North in a Daimler, <laughs> nice. chauffeur-driven Daimler, <laughs> Good way for the most to do part. Um, so he was really getting out of his car, um, <laughs> observing things, speaking to people, then getting back in and driving on. Nice way um, of doing it. It was, and it was a novel way of doing it at the time. Mm. And anyway, his book, um, his descriptions of the North, later became part of his wartime broadcast, when yes. Priestley was a hugely influential figure. At one point, his radio broadcasts were followed by almost as many people who listened to Churchill's. Goodness me. You know, and and um, he often referred back to that, the wasted 30s, in his, in his speeches and talks. And Margaret Thatcher, in fact, in her autobiography, she once wrote... You're not the person I thought you were going to mention. No, you probably didn't. But Margaret Thatcher said, at home, broadcasters like J.B. Priestley mm. gave a comfortable yet idealistic gloss to social progress in a left-wing direction. And that is what Priestley did without ever using the word yeah. socialism. Yeah. He described um, very eloquently the social conditions in the north of England at the time. Yeah, and, and I think though those descriptions couldn't but move us towards doing something about it that's exactly right and they did have and because of that they, they it's no one can pinpoint this exactly but Priestley and Priestley's writings about yeah. England and about poverty in the north were part of the kind of intellectual body of opinion that led to the Labour government the yeah. post-war Labour government and, let's and, have a listen to the man himself yeah let's because he's great to listen to Mr. 
J.B. Priestley is a great advocate of the cheerful countenance and a great believer in robust common sense. Hear what he tells a gathering in aid of the Greater London Fund for the Blind. We know very well this war is no joke, that great sacrifices will be demanded of us. In fact, we know it so well that we don't need an endless series of mournful politicians and officials to keep telling us. If we're compelled to make our minds as dreary, gloomy and fanatical as Hitler's, then we've given him the victory. But if on top of that dogged resolution, which has always been a notable characteristic of the British, we build high, shining towers of humour and music and cheerful comradeship, then we completely defy Hitler and his ant-like hordes and at the same time enjoy our own way of life. Therefore, I say, let the people sing. And following this excellent advice from the famous author turned broadcaster, those people who were present certainly sang. That is so amazing. (laughs) Just everything, it so captures a a period with that Pathé News stuff. It does. But but his his evoking of of art and and, uh, and the spirit of people, um, God, it's just great. It's great. Well, that is Priestley, the Bradford, the Bradford-born writer, the English patriot. You can hear it in his accent. You can hear the influence he had. The yeah. fact that you know the fact that he was seen worthy of news. Yeah. What some writer had to say to and, and people. And in the clip, if people want to watch it, he looks so confident. He's got that northern, <laughs> that northern confidence. He did. He does. And and also you hear that kind of common senseness about yeah. him. I mean, Robust he wasn't really a, common sense. I, I mean, Priestley was a kind of socialist, but not in an ideological sense. No. Really, he was more no. based around ideas of fairness and justice. Um, and, and, you and you can that. feel that fulcrum that that his writing and Orwell and others uh, created to that Labour government after the war. Funny it, you should mention that, actually, because that, apart from East English Journey, the other writer who crucially yeah. defined the North and still does yeah. and defines Northern grimness yes. is George Orwell. His good old George the, Orwell, the friend of this programme. The Road to Wigan Pier, what a book. Um even the cover, the penguin cover with the two kids and the bloke with his clogs on, um, and we we we've been taken with this book, um, and we were lucky that we could um, not only explore it but explore it with his son, very lucky, Richard, Richard um, Blair, Richard Blair, and yeah, I the the thing that that struck me reading this book um, was his description of miners. It is impossible to watch the fillers at work without feeling a pang of envy for their toughness. It is a dreadful job that they do, an almost superhuman job by the standards of an ordinary person. 
For they are not only shifting monstrous quantities of coal, they are also doing it in a position that doubles or trebles their work. They have got to remain kneeling all the while. Shoveling is comparatively easy when you are standing up, because you can use your knee and thigh to drive the shovel along. Kneeling down, the whole of the strain is thrown upon your arm and belly muscles, and the other conditions do not exactly make things easier. There is the heat. It varies, but in some minds it is suffocating and the coal dust that stuffs up your throat and nostrils and collects along your eyelids, and the unending rattle of the conveyor belt, which in that confined space is rather like the rattle of a machine gun. But the fillers look and work as though they were made of iron. What a piece of writing. Astonishing. I don't think you'd find a better description of miners. Nowhere. Um, And interestingly, it's quoted at length, including that quote, in... Paxman, Jeremy Paxman's book called Black Gold, which has just come out this year. Um, and and he quotes Orwell, because I don't think anyone describes it better. It makes you feel every pain as he yeah. hits his back on the top of a mining shaft. It makes yeah, when you he feel describes walking is, down difficult. to the seam. Yeah. Um, it, there's something about the way Orwell... I don't want this to sound like the Orwell fan club, because obviously there are critiques of Orwell, but... He has that outsider's ability to walk into a situation and you go with him, which is what Priestley does as well. But you really go with him down that mine. You um, do, and that's him at his best <clears throat> in a way. But it's worth remembering that Orwell has been criticised over the years, including yeah. by some of the people from the towns that he visited. Yeah, yeah, the for, people um, of Wigan. <laughs> for adding details right. that um, making certain people in situations seem more sordid than they actually were, maybe taking stripping away some of the dignity that those people had. I, I think and there's certainly parts of Wigan Pier where that is definitely not true, No, where you can see no. the empathy that he shows yeah. and feels towards people. But there are times when he talks about, I think it's in the in the um, boarding house, when he talks about the thumbprints on the um, chamber pot, also yeah. serving him the tripe. Yeah. Little descriptions like that that reveal his class prejudices, yeah. bearing in mind he was an upper-class bloke with yeah. a very unusual trajectory. But, yeah. but I think the interesting thing about it is that Orwell was knew this, in a way. He, he was Part of his journey to the north was his journey into himself, yeah. a way of kind of trying to yeah. relocate or locate himself in which, relation which to Which is what writers do. It is what writers do. They, and they have to journey into themselves if it's going to have that veracity that he, he certainly seems to generate. Neither him nor Priestley were the kind of writers who would basically, if, they, if you gave them a commission, they'd simply go and do the commission. No. They would always bring their own slant, their own agenda to it. So Wigan Pier... Half of Wigan Pier is a kind of minute description yeah. of aspects of poverty and unemployment and yeah, employment and in the north. The other half is this fearsome tirade. I know, a total tirade against, <laughs> often aimed at people he called um, Nancy poets and sandal wearing <laughs> poets, which is really quite prejudiced and then full of this kind of this strange and tormented relationship with yeah. his own class background. Yeah. You know, and, and he, he says um, working class people smell. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then analyzes why that's the case. You can yeah. see why people in the North Yeah, thought, absolutely. we're not having this. And, and great that the Orwell Society put a library in Wigan as, as a sort of um, uh, reparation, maybe. Well, and also significant that Wigan allow, allowed that to happen, yeah. that they had the Orwell archive put in the same library where he wanted to sat well, and, and study. And, and the theme that we're looking at, this idea of it, it, how did it get so grim, well... You know, George Orwell is certainly a big part, I think. Even recently, Kay Burley on Sky News 
she's from Wigan. She goes back there. She references the road to Wigan Pier. And, and these are some of the things that we'll, we'll talk about with Richard. People like Beatrix Campbell have made those journeys. Yeah. Wigan, Wigan Pier revisited the book yeah. she wrote in the 80s. Yeah. The Daily Mirror this year had a series called My Wigan Pier. Right. In which they each each episode, each day, they had interviews with people who talked about how they couldn't pay rent, how they were forced to sleep yeah. on the streets, how they were having their employment support alliance taken away, yeah. um, not being able to heat their homes, asylum seekers living on £37.75 per right. week. There you These go. are new variants on northern grimness that persist into the present and yet once again it's the idea of Wigan Pier the journey to Wigan Pier it's a journey of exploration (laughs) into the north it's like he cut a seam that 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 then people follow if you want to take that mining method (laughs) exactly that's exactly what he did do it is it is too they've cut a seam that then people feel more able to follow so with all his kind of flaws or limitations if you like he did something that basically 80 odd years later still resonates in the way people think about the north in the past and the north in the present yeah i mean we spoke about that with his son richard blair didn't we why don't we yeah let's listen listen. and see what he had to say about it great so richard welcome to the podcast Thank you. Um, my first question is, what influence do you think your father's writing had on modern perceptions of the North? Oh, crikey. Um, well, first of all, of course, he wasn't unfamiliar with uh, the hardships of life. I mean, after all, he had spent time in uh, down, as a down and out in both Paris and London. So he wasn't unaware of hardships in uh, in some, I mean, after all, London was could be pretty, pretty grim as well, you know. Oh yeah, uh, in, in all yeah. parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, going up north, I mean, after all, he was asked by Victor Galevs to to go and report on conditions in that part of the world in the northwest. Um, I think based on the on the fact that he had written this book uh, down and out, and realised that uh, he had. You know, he'd experienced uh, hardships, he'd experienced hardships, and especially in Paris as well. So I don't think he, my father wasn't uh, unfamiliar with, with hardships, crikey. He had, uh, you know, been putting up with hardships most of his life, I think. Is that why? Either, either financially or, or, or physically. Is that why, did Victor Galantz approach him then on the basis of that other book, Down and Out in Paris and London? I think I, I think he did. Yes, he, he saw he, he perceived uh, uh, well in Burmese days, of course. Uh, I think he perceived something in Orwell that um, that kind of you know caught his attention uh, in his ability in uh, reportage uh, and his ability to, to I know see see things very clearly and able to write very clearly. Yeah, and I think that's probably why he he entrusted him with this. Uh, with, with this, with this uh, program, uh, the exercise, call it what you will. Mm-hmm. But he didn't, to, he didn't get exactly the book he asked for, did he? Uh, probably not. No, I think he got a lot more than he bargained for. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was his fault, not, not Orwell's. I mean, uh, you know, Orwell went off to, uh, he, he did as he was told, and um, uh, came back with something slightly different. Well, he came back with two parts, didn't he? he yes. in, in the road to Wigan Pier. The first part, of course, was simply conditions in that part of the world, um, which he, some people say, overblew in a in a way. Uh, I don't think so. I, I think, I think what he was trying to do was to draw people's attention to the god awful conditions that people had to live under, 
and, and do the, make the best of, of uh, what they've got. I mean, after all, it was the mill owners and the coal, coal mine owners who screwed them down uh, and made their life a misery. Nevertheless, yeah. these, uh, these uh, the people in, in the Northeast, in uh, North West, rather, and, and indeed all over the uh, industrialized England, were great communities within themselves because that's how they survived. Yeah. They, they survived because they, they, they looked after each other because no, nobody else was going to look after them. Yeah. And um, it was the Depression. It was pretty grim. Oh, God, I was going to say it was pretty grim up north. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. No, you can say that. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, but but I, I think, he, I think he, um, he wanted to get right under the skin of what life was like up there. That is why he went to stay with the, uh, with the people he did who had the tripe yeah. shop. Yeah. which was out of the ordinary. I think uh, it, uh, a lot of the people, the working class people up there were absolutely aghast that he should go to such a place. There were much better places for him to go to. Um, you know, he was offered good accommodation in new council estates mm. where, you know, so even the, even the working class people probably thought that he was overdoing it. So, uh, but I think he was really trying to get under the skin of, of what conditions were really like. And um, from that point of view, I think he did a damn good job. Unfortunately, Wigan took offence over it, um, <laughs> rightly or wrongly. Uh, I could understand why. At the but time. I th sorry? At the time, Wigan took At the time. And I think almost indeed, there are some who probably still do. <laughs> um, well, um, it, it, I mean, it's interesting that even just recently, Kay Burley from Sky News, who's from Wigan, she that she spent a week there looking at what conditions were like now and referenced the road to Wigan Pier more than once. So mm. it's still very much in the sort of popular consciousness. I don't think she sounded that insulted, but but it certainly it's still seared in there. Um, well, yes, I, I think the thing is, of course, is that uh, the road to Wigan Pier suddenly took on a, a life of its own, mm. and um, uh, it's now a sort of a reference book. For, for for working conditions in the in the depression, yeah. Of course, yeah. what they what uh, what he found in Wigan at the time, you could have found in any northwestern or any industrialized town. Yeah. You didn't have to go to Wigan. It just so happened that he went to Wigan. It could have been the road to to Burnley or Bolton or God knows where else. Sheffield. <laughs> well, of course, he did go to Sheffield. He did yes, he? he did, and and uh, it's interesting. As someone from Sheffield, there's a point where he says, um, if you thought Wigan was bad, try Sheffield. <laughs> I mean, that, I'm paraphrasing. But, well, yeah. there, there you go. But isn't this, this is one of the intriguing things about your father's text, the fact that it's almost like a kind of thermometer that people of each ge different generations use to measure how far we've gone, we've progressed from Wigan Pier and or how far we've reverted back to it. So you'll get people making their own journeys following your father's journey. Um, they'll do it in the 80s, as Beatrix Campbell did. There's various people who have done it journalistically. Why is that? Why is it that, you're, that, that the road to Wigan uh, more than any other text, is a kind of thermometer for northern poverty? Well, isn't that a, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I think probably because, A, it was uh, the, the depth of thought that my father put into his book. Um, and the clarity of, the, of his, the clarity of his thought and the clarity of his writing. 
he 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 really did see what other people didn't quite see, um, and he could he saw this almost instinctively and straight away, and was able to put it down in simple words that everybody could understand, and and somehow it, it's gelled with so many people as you know the the, the touchstone of. Um, of 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 how all these places have progressed over the decades. There's there's something about the way he writes. There's a physicality to his descriptions that mm -hmm. that, is. that just um, is 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 very powerful. Where did that come from in him? Was it something? Well, where did where did, where did indeed did it come from? Um, it came from well. His upbringing, I suppose, he just had had a his, uh, he, he did an incredible amount of reading. He, he read voraciously, so he understood the English language. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and I think he just had a, had an ability to write anyway, uh, because he did damn all work when he was at Eton. Um, <laughs> well, we've all had a lot of experience of men who've been to Eton in the last few years, haven't we, Adrian? Let's say more than enough. <laughs> that's that enough said about about Eton, but yeah, I I I wish they'd all had the experience that Orwell had. I have a feeling some of them would have made any difference. <laughs> <laughs> but Orwell was Orwell came at this from a very peculiar background, yes. didn't he? Because he was basically belonged almost to no class. No. Um, and he, you know he, yeah, he rejected his previous one. He didn't really feel part of. Yeah. Even though he empathised with the people he met in the north, he didn't really feel part of them you can hear that in in the way richard talks about him you can um it was great i think to to be able to speak to his son like that definitely um and and that where he says um it's a touchstone that's what we were saying earlier it is um and 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 that he read voraciously um but but yeah and and I was saying earlier, you know, he, he, he they're like the documentary makers in words, um, and 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 they create images. But there are actually images as well, aren't there? There are. I mean, one of the interesting things about that whole thirties culture and these these journeys to the north, it wasn't only writers that made them. In the wake of these writers, you had photographers like Humphrey Spender and um, Bill Brandt, who was only recently yes. in exile from Germany via Austria. And he did Bill Brandt in particular. This guy, his photographs are extraordinary. Fabulous photographs. I mean, he did this um, series of photographs of the English. So right. he did a lot of pictures of kind of again an posh outsider, an outsider. Yes, totally. He he did pictures of kind of um, I don't know posh young blokes hanging around in sitting rooms in right. London right. and so on. And then he read Priestley and Orwell, ah. and he decided to go up north. So he went up north and he <laughs> took a series grim. of stunning photographs. And the thing about these photographs, I mean, I've got one of them here. I mean, this is. Probably the most famous one. Yes, it's a I know that one. The Coal Searcher near Jarrow. Yes. This is something you might find in Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Yeah. The landscape is stripped of everything. Yeah. It's like a human being reduced to the limit, really. Yeah. And to the you think of that. Bare need. To the bare need of collect, collecting bits of coal, coal to heat their homes. This is the 30s image, but bear in mind we're now in the midst of a fuel crisis. Yes, people exactly. choosing between heating their eating homes and, and eating. eating. So it's extraordinary how resonant this picture still seems. And at the well, time, yeah, at the time, um, it was published in the Picture Post, 
Oh, which yeah. is a hugely influential magazine that mostly of photographs, yes. reportage, photogra- yes. photography and reportage. Yeah, I'm sure my parents of, read it. They would have done it. They were, definitely would have done it. It had a readership of about 1,800, 1,800,000 wow. people a week wow. at its peak. And in the war, Bill Brand's photograph was published in an issue called The, war, the Wasted Years. Wow. And The Wasted Years were the 30s. And the caption that accompanied this picture of the coal searcher, it said... The man who might have been hewing coal in tons scratches for ounces on the slag heaps. An unemployed Durham miner on his way home in 1936 after a day's search for coal to heat his home. He was one of an army of 1,880,000 unemployed. One miner in five is out of work. They were part of the price we paid for failing to modernise our industries and (laughs) falling back on restriction, wage-cutting, price-fixing. So... The Picture Post had quite a, was another one of these publications yeah. that actually shaped the post-war well, um, welfare state consensus. These visual and, and, and written images were haunting, it seems to me. And they haunted the people who read them and, and saw them in a way that, that impelled them to do something about it. In a way that, you know, I wonder about now. I, won- I wonder how impelled we feel because that that image there, he's, this is the man that Orwell's talking about, you know, the fillers, mm-hmm. chopping out coal, reduced to, uh, you know, the shade of a human being. If we had coal, it would be perfectly possible to imagine somebody doing that now, yeah, it would. wouldn't they? And that's the interesting thing about Wigan Pier. This what Richard Blair was referring to. It's the touchstone of how yes. much these regions have progressed, and also yeah. how much they've not progressed. Yeah, this is what. So when people kind of revisit Wigan Pier, they're asking the question: Are we still well, how, in thirties Wigan yeah, Pier, exactly. or are we not? And the answer nowadays is: We really have not moved nearly as far as we should have done. I mean, That's scary. Out of the twenty most deprived regions in the UK in two thousand nineteen, nineteen of them were in the North good, or good. the Midlands. In 2018 to 19 in Greater Manchester, yeah. 183,105 children were below the poverty line, despite one or more parents in work. 183,000? Yeah, that's it. That's a lot of kids, isn't You're it? You're not kidding. So <laughs> in 2021, research by Loughborough University found that child poverty in Wigan mm-hmm. had increased from 17,541 to 18,780 between 2014 and 2019. The biggest rise in child poverty was in the North East, where it rose from those same years from 26% of the population of the North East to 37% of the population. I love your research. So many, many working families with no safety net, forced to turn to high interest loans to get through from one week to the other, increased food bank usage, all of these kind of things. If you had a contemporary Orwell right now, yeah, that this is exactly. the kind of thing that they would observe. So today we can still ask, as Priestley once did, yes. what is the use of England? And England, in this connection, of course, means the city, Fleet Street, and the West End clubs. Wow. Congratulating herself upon having pulled through yet again when there is no plan for Lancashire. Since when did Lancashire cease to become a part of England? So substitute <sighs> Lancashire with the North. The North. And you have this empty talk about levelling up. Yeah, rhetoric. You have have a lot of rhetoric. And 
and those kind of statistics excellent. is what's underneath it absolutely and, absolutely and we are. need people to be telling those stories yeah and so you know this northern grimness thing northern grimness is really about northern poverty yeah in, in his, the modern understanding of the term, it's what it's about the people well, who yeah. obviously in Norwell and the photographers saw and spoke to. Yeah, and, and yet, even like Don McCullen or Martin mm-hmm. Parr, you know, they capture that. The grimness is that sort of dehumanizing uh, that sucks the life out of someone, that stops them being able to live well. That's that's when it is grim up north. And yet, there's always been another side to yeah, this. Exactly. And, and the KLF moved from that description of those, those towns to Jerusalem. Yeah, it's, a, it's quite amazing because no one expects it. When you, no. hear that, when you listen to the whole song, you're, you're seeing these musicians. If you see the video of the song, the KLF song, they are kind of yeah. playing their instruments yeah. in the rain with a load of northern town names <laughs> being recited of the yes. lyrics. And it's, it's pretty grim yeah. in that video. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, comes Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And, of course, that's what Blake said, isn't it? Can yeah. we build Jerusalem in these grim Among satanic... these dark satanic mills. Exactly. And it's not only Blake, is it? takes me back (laughs) it's funny isn't it 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 seems like it's all about the north but it's not is it it's not about the north but (laughs) interestingly enough it's um it's the uk's favorite advert is it yep and the director was ridley scott oh of course it was 1971 i think when the hovis loaf advert came out so he's cutting his teeth (laughs) it was some it was ridley scott it was 1971 it was not shot in the north. The actual town it takes when yes. you see the boy pushing his bicycle yeah, yeah, up the hill yeah. at Shaftesbury, um, which I think <laughs> is in Dorset. It's in the West Country anyway. And the accent. Yeah, well, that's uh, West Country. That's sounds. not a northern accent. No, it's not. I mean, even it's I not. know it's not a northern But I accent. always thought it was about the north. So do most people. That's, that's bizarre. the striking thing about it is that most people who have been asked about it yeah. think it's about the north. Yeah. So why? But the thing is. It's a very kind of sentimental kind of. It's I his. can't call it chocolate box exactly. No, no. But nevertheless, it's a very sentimental, warm, hard work. Hard work. Going uphill. Clean work. Hard clean work, work. Clean work. Decent work. Decent. <laughs> decent work. And and you know, eat your wheat germ, and and then you'll be able to get your clogs up the hill again. It all feels like the north. And then you've but got Dorak is... playing over the background as well with the new world. And yeah, so on. and who is it played by? Ah, yes, yes, you know. Is it the Ashington, Ashington... Ashington Colliery Band. Colliery Band, where yeah. my dad came from. Absolutely. Well, Newcastle. And even the sound, that that's probably why people think it's the north. Well, because exactly. It's the, it's the Colliery Band. I can't hear a Colliery Band without filling up. 
But um, the, well, I mean, you, you think of the Corrie Band scene in Brass Off. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, that great that, speech. That's an important um, kind of, if you like, an antithesis to Northern grimness. Is that you know, Corrie Bands are only one indication of a deep cultural resilience and a creativity. There we are. That, cultural resilience and and creativity, which manifests yeah. itself in so many different ways. You know, yeah. despite um, people sometimes living in these kind of situations that we've been. And that's that great reading about turn that Blake gets, that the KLF song gets, is that all of this grimness doesn't end in just misery. It, no. it ends in this incredible cultural resilience. Yeah, I mean, when the fall... keeps coming the, back at you. The fall song, Hit the North. Yeah. Does this fall, is that song mean Hit the North as in Punish It? Or does it mean Go There? Because <laughs> that's there. the place where it's happening. Go so there. it's like an invitation and a celebration. And also, to get this quote, this is from the Wigan painter... Theodore Major. Oh, you show me these pictures. No fan of Orwell's. No. He didn't like no, at no. all no. the way Orwell described Wigan. But this is what he said of his childhood growing up in Wigan. He remembered the dark streets, the red flames of open blast furnaces on wet pavements. I saw my playmates walking on fire. I saw the morning mists, the light of yellow sun, the dark clouds, the pattern of smoke against grey sky. I saw the white sailing moon. I saw the dignity of workmen and the beauty and warmth of women. Wow. I saw God in every child. God. That's not the road to Wigan. Beer, no, it's it? not, is it? I it's, saw God in every child. It's a sensational quote, though, isn't it? It is. God, it's magnificent. Yeah, but, I mean, lots of people have seen that side of the North as well, including Priestley. Yeah. Priestley, for example, in his memoirs, not in English Journey, right. but in his memoirs, recalls um, growing up as a young man in Bradford, and he describes it as kind of um, a golden age right. in his life and also in the life of the country because it was pre-World War I. Yeah, he fought in World War I. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He spent at least two years um, in the trenches. Well, so he remembered that as this go with this kind of golden hue over it. Yeah. He describes walking across the hills when workmen from Bradford would walk 40 miles on a Sunday. 40 yeah. miles on a Sunday. He said it was totally normal to do that. Yes. And even in his journey, he talked, he says, um, the hills were now solidly black, their edges very sharp against the last faint silver of the day. Lovely. They were beginning to take on for me that Wordsworthian quality that belongs to the north. And Wordsworth belongs to the north. <laughs> and so do you, Adrian. So, look, asking you then, what would be for you a personal moment, something you do in the north that is not grim and yet <laughs> only possible in the north? Okay. Immediately what comes to mind is a little trip we do when we're feeling a bit down in the mouth. We we drive to Keithley um, in in West Yorkshire and we get the steam train from on the Keithley and Worth Railway, um, which is the railway that's in the Railway Children, that lovely film. Um, and they have Yorkshire beer on the train and then we get off at Haworth and we walk up the cobble streets, like like in the advert, but proper northern, um, and we go to the Bronte Parsonage, uh, and we, we look round the Bronte Parsonage, and we buy licorice. Sounds good. It's, and that sounds like a massive northern cliche. Sounds but it's well. not, it's What's real. wrong with that? And it, 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 it's, none of it's grim, and, and, and it's cultural resilience. It's, you know, the Brontes. It's it's um, filmmaking. Uh, the station at Keithley is in hundreds of films mm -hmm. where they where anyone's getting on a steam train. Um, so it it's a bit like going into the past, but it's not. It's it's 
it takes me to a sense of northernness that where all that cultural resilience is all banked. I know what you mean. I, I mean, I can... What's yours? So many, so many. I mean, I can just think of a couple off the top of my head. I mean, one is, I remember being in Robin Hood's Bay once, oh, yeah. at the end of Robin Hood's Bay, right on the pier, sea behind, the usual kind of English mackerel-coloured sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were about four or five blokes, big blokes, big bearded blokes, each of them with a pint in the hand, <laughs> singing sea shanties, <laughs> a cappella. We ate fish and chips. You're kidding. Everybody knows some of the best fish and chips in the north coming oh, down to Robin Hood's Bay. Yes. So there we were sitting, listening to these wonderful songs, resonating from about 200 years old at least, you know, oh, with these amazing. big blokes singing them in the sea in the background. You just don't see that, like in Cambridge or in the Thames, <laughs> you know, it's a different experience. And another thing would be Mearsbrook Park, near yes. where I live. Lovely. During the pandemic, it was mm -hmm. the only place for us to go, for, for many of us in that to area, walk. Yeah. to walk. And you would walk up there to the top in this um, age of calamity and <laughs> past the house where Ruskin once had his art museum. Of course. You know, the old, old house. Yeah. You go to the top and then you could look down at the Sheffield that Turner once painted. Yeah. More or less from the same spot, a bit yeah. higher up. Yeah. And you could just see Sheffield and imagine how it was in the 19th century. Black Sheffield. Yeah. But not anymore. No. Green Sheffield. Beautiful. Trees everywhere, yeah. hills rolling back towards Rotherham. Absolutely. And, I, and you can see the architecture of the city kind of showing the history and the different phases. Those folded of it, valleys. Know, folded back, and yeah. Terraced houses. It, it, makes me, it makes me feel like I was in Rome or Lisbon or something. You know, <laughs> that's, how, that's how good it looks. <laughs> and that's available any day. I can go there any day I like and yes, see that. exactly. It's just there. And I think um, you've got a poem about this, haven't you? Well, yeah. So... Because you'll usually have. I usually have got a poem about some aspect of the North and Sheffield. But this is... Um, it, it dawned on me, and we're going to come on to some of these questions like the North-South divide and, um, you know, how the North is viewed, how the North votes, all of those kind of questions. And I was thinking how Peniston, just above Sheffield, voted Conservative in the last election. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, well, how on earth did that happen? You know, this is a place between Barnsley, which is a mining area, and Sheffield, which was a steel area. And it, it dawned on me that that cultural res resilience that we've banked is, is, is falling out of our memory banks in some ways. Um, and I wanted to write an oration about coal and steel as if I was standing at the grave. That's here. And here's the end. But in the veins and genes, like underground seams of memory and inheritance, there is an insistence, a persistence that aggravates and activates, that elevates like a cage coming up or a crucible heating, repeating and repeating, that we are their heirs, that we should not squander their memory to the demagoguery of Westminster, to the tawdry and lacklustre, but be the North we have always been, the edges still keen, the eyes still peregrine, to reforge the linkage between our labours, the unbreakable support of our neighbours, the real powerhouse of solidarity that's our prosperity, our posterity, not mean austerity, but the heart that is evergreen, the soul of coal and steel, still pristine, the way we can make a world still from the husk of our past. But are we prepared to take the risk that we could be the springboard, the nation's vanguard, the North restored? Beautiful. I think um, nothing grim about that. No. And I think Priestley and Orwell would have, um, would have loved it. <laughs> well, I hope so.
You are listening to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. Well, Matt, after all that cultural resilience, next month we're going to be looking at some of this resilience when we discuss the defeated North, the miners' strike, Orgreave, Hillsborough. So we want you to listen next time and this time. Yeah, and this time, as many comments as you want to leave, we're interested in what you've got to say. Um, the email address is grimupnorththepodcast at gmail.com. You can email us, tell us what you think. Please do. You can leave comments on Apple Podcasts or Podbean, all of these. We're really interested in how this is coming over to you, what kind of questions it raises for you, what your not Grim Up North experiences are, anything you want to tell us, really. Um, and uh, just want to say thanks for listening. Because Thank lots very of much. you have been listening, and that's great. It sure is. <laughs>